What is going on, Incredible Podcast family? Amazing to be back with you. I hope that you're doing well during all of this pandemonium that seems to continue to happen. I have been working really hard, doing a ton of research, I'm doing a lot of new shows on YouTube, but it has been a little bit of a gap to uh, post them on here. The amount of research going into this is very intense, so my apologies for the consistency. And we have an amazing episode for you today. We have Thomas Campbell back on the podcast. It's an amazing show. We talk about Tom's background in physics, working with the uh, Monroe Institute of Consciousness, studying consciousness for 40 years. And we talk about uh, science is now uh, cooperate, how science can cooperate globally. We talk about marketing. We talk about the coronavirus. We talk about what we can learn from the coronavirus. We talk about fear suppressing immunity and the importance of de-evolving uh, versus fear, how to let go of fear. Um, chaos, understanding facts versus opinions, critical thinking, and so much more. This is an epic podcast. I know you're going to enjoy it. If you want to support the show, I'm definitely experiencing... Uh what do you call censorship and and uh and all kinds of things um shows definitely getting limited so if you want to support on patreon that helps immensely join the academy get access to the soul compass course i just added some brain wave entrainment meditations and audios in there there are courses exclusive content it is epic and uh, you can get that at bit.ly forward slash mind body spirit 21 or send me an email matt at zenathlete.com and uh, happy to hook you up a lot more people are going through the soul compass course because it really is designed for you to get clear in your life purpose and direction overcome self-sabotage and really create design a life that is from your heart and from your soul and i've been getting a lot more inquiries for personal coaching and if you'd like to do some personal coaching hit me up be happy to help you out i'm taking more clients in july and august um, because it's just necessary a lot of people have the time and they really want to co-create something meaningful so if that's you hit me up mattbelair.com forward slash coaching fill out that form and if for some reason i don't get back to you hit me up matt at zenathlete.com because i think something is going on there uh, the best way to support the show is to do one kind act wherever you are in the world we definitely need that more than ever so wherever you are do one kind act um, definitely sign up for the email list to stay in touch and i think that is about everything so thank you guys so much for listening this is an amazing episode i know you're going to enjoy it so let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we dive in just taking a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and just let it out slowly filling every cell muscle and fiber of your being with peace joy, contentment, enthusiasm, and ready to take on this amazing episode with Tom Campbell. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is a lifelong professional applied physicist. Began a par parallel career in the early 1970s, researching altered states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at Monroe Laboratories in the early 1970s, where he and a few others were instrumental in getting Monroe's laboratory for the study of consciousness up and running. He continued his research into the nature of consciousness and reality, and in February of 2003, published the My Big Toe Trilogy, which represents the results and conclusions of over 30 years of scientific exploration into the nature of existence. This overarching model of reality, mind, and consciousness explains the paranormal as well as the normal, places spirituality within a scientific context, 
solves a host of scientific paradoxes, and provides direction for those wishing to personally experience an expanded awareness of all that is. The MBT reality model explains metaphysics, spirituality, love, and human purpose at the most fundamental level, provides a complete theory of consciousness, and derives a more advanced physics that derives both relativity and quantum mechanics from first principles, something traditional physics cannot yet do. As a logic-based work of science, My Big Toe has no basis in belief, dogma, or any unusual assumptions. Welcome back to the show, Tom Campbell. Thank you, Matthew. Pleased to be here. It's great to see you again, and I'll have everybody know that that is your short bio. Uh, you've, been, <laughs> you've been doing incredible research for so long. Monroe Laboratories in itself has just such a storied history, and it's so well known. Your work is so vast, and I couldn't think of a better guest uh, for the times we're going through right now to just share some perspective. I wanted to hear what you think is going on in the world, um, how we can handle this as a humanity. And I know um, you're telling me that your life has kind of been the same, but I know you've been doing a lot of interviews. So I'm happy to hear that your voice and your perspective is getting out there and grateful to, to see you again. Well, it's going to be fun. Yes. We have interesting times we're living in and, uh, you know, that means that we have ample opportunities to grow up because whenever we have to face change, we also face opportunity at the same time. So there's, there's always that silver lining in that, in that cloud. The change may seem ominous, but the opportunities for learning is really uh, very beautiful and very positive. But yeah, we I've have to grasp it. Yeah. And I remember actually, you know, the last podcast we did, it was very well received. And that was one of your concepts to, to grow up as an individual and to grow up as a, as a society to kind of make better changes. And you put it in a very easy to understand way. And I know that you have a deep background in physics and the nature of consciousness and all of that. Do you want to give a very brief background on some of your work if people are, are new to what you've done? And then we'll kind of dive into your perspective of what's going on in the world right now. Well, you know, if I did a if I did a, a catch up kind of on MBT, that would uh, that would take a little while. I don't know if you you want something quite that deep, but <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> yes, I worked as a professional physicist and as a as a conscious researcher, um, starting in 1970, and uh, I had uh, two employers, if you will. Uh, one of them paid better than the other. The consciousness was <laughs> was free. For my, uh, for my, it was volunteer for me out at Bob Monroe's. You know, Bob and I had a deal that he'd teach me what he knew about out of body if I was a physicist for him and made lab equipment and did some experiments and kept good scientific protocols and that sort of thing. So my two, my careers, uh, in both science and, and in uh, research and consciousness both started at the same time, which was at about 1970, 71, early 70s. And like everything else, if you really enjoy what you do and you, you uh, have fun at it, you never stop learning. You're always growing. You're always having more insights. You're always trying to figure out what the next step is and how to do whatever it is you can do better. And that's true in the physics world or in the metaphysics world or in the world of consciousness. So it's uh, come a long way uh, from Monroe Laboratories where 
my friend Dennis Menrick, he was an electrical engineer, and I um, started going out there like 20 hours a week to uh, study consciousness with Bob Monroe and let him teach us out of body. So that's where it all came back to me. I turned, it turns out that when I was five, six, seven years old, I was doing out of body regularly. And uh, I just kind of forgotten about it and hadn't paid too much attention to it. Like you do, you let things of childhood kind of go. And uh, then when I started going out to Bob's, a whole lot of that just poured back in. And uh, I put a lot of the puzzle pieces together and it all made a, you know, a single picture. So that was, <clears throat> that was good. But in the 2003, I published the My Big Toe, which started out to be a theory of consciousness. That was my idea, was to have a real good understanding of what is consciousness, and how does it work, and what can you do with it, and you know what are its limitations, and et cetera. And I realized that you know, one fact about consciousness is that it's fundamental, and this reality we call our physical reality is not fundamental. It's a subset of consciousness. It's kind of a fact of consciousness. And I got to that fact because many, many experiences while exploring consciousness, I learned that I could affect things in the physical with my consciousness, but I couldn't affect things in the realm of consciousness with my physical. So that told me that consciousness was the primary, was the fundamental thing. It was the thing that was, that was uh, you know, downstream from the physical or I should say upstream from the physical. So it was a source, it was, it was more fundamental because I could modify the physical reality with an intent, but the, the realm of consciousness and what happened there just happened there. You couldn't uh, do something in the physical world and modify consciousness, it didn't work that way. So consciousness was fundamental and the physical was not. So then I, my, uh, uh, my understanding and logic told me that the physical world is a derivative of the consciousness world and that reality is really just information, nothing more than that. The reality that your viewers are, are watching and listening to right now is just information and that information can be reduced to bits. It's, it's digital information, that's it. Everything you hear, see, smell, touch, feel it's all just information and you as a consciousness get that information and interpret it to be this reality so i came to the conclusion that what was fundamental in both consciousness and in the physical universe was information that was the most fundamental thing consciousness then took that information created a system in which it uh, produced a virtual reality that we call our physical universe and that we are individuated units of consciousness, just part of that larger conscious system. And we're the players of this virtual reality. Okay. That's that physical universe is a virtual reality. And once I got that idea, it was clear that a lot of things before that didn't make sense, like double slit experiment and uh, a lot of other paradoxes in physics that all physicists kind of struggle with because you know, these paradoxes are things that are facts. They're experimental facts. Experiment is what makes a fact. You know, and the fact is, if you do this experiment, you'll get this result. Now the problem is, can you explain why you get that result? 
And if you can't explain it, well, then it's science as usual. But if you can't explain it, and it's like, I have no idea why we get that result, then that's called a paradox. And physics is full of those paradoxes. Simple things are paradoxes in physics. Where does time come from? Where does space come from? You know, I mean, there's a lot of things. Where does mass come from? Where does charge come from? You know, and these are all the basic things of physics. And they're all basically unknown. You don't know. They're just there because they're there, you know. And, uh, and so science, physics, is kind of based on a bunch of assumptions that things just are because they are. Well, that doesn't sound very scientific, you know. And it, it led me to the conclusion, since everything is based on information, that uh, physics could be described as a subset of consciousness, since consciousness was the fundamental thing. So then I started looking after I'd, I'd already published my big toe by then as, as uh, basically, like I say, a, a model of consciousness. I knew and I stated in that book that physics and the material world was a subset, but I really didn't know how to explain that. You know, it was kind of wave your hands and say it must be true, but I really uh, couldn't explain it very well. So I started working on that. And it wasn't very long, it was a year or so, that I realized that I understood quantum physics. I understood the double slit experiment. And basically physics does not understand that yet. They call that weird science because it's a paradox and it's weird because they can't explain it. It just happens that way. Matter of fact, it happens that way in the process of violating, you know, uh, the other laws of physics, you know, clearly, you know, it, uh, Particles move, even though they're not interacted on by any forces. They just seem to move around and put themselves in certain patterns just because they like those patterns, but there's no forces to make them move. So that's very contrary to our sense of materialism. That's very contrary to our sense of determinism. And so it's very con contrary to our beliefs, you know, to the beliefs of science. Yes, science is based on a set of beliefs. Science and religion are on opposite poles, we think, of, of philosophy, but actually both are based on a set of beliefs. And uh, you know, neither has a very strong fundamental core. And that's because all of it is based on consciousness, both the religion and the and the physical reality. You know, that's the source of it. So I started looking for that that physics and found it. And then realized I also could derive quantum, I mean, uh, relativity, because relativity is based on C being a constant. And nobody knows why the speed of light's a constant. Doesn't matter how fast the source of the light's going, the light always goes the same speed. And that, those two things just reinforce the fact that this is a virtual reality, because virtual reality concepts explain both of them. And I'm presently doing some experiments to verify that this concept, this virtual reality concept that uh, is a kind of a rewrite of physics, which physics is kind of at the base of science. You've got logic, which is math, and then you have physics and then chemistry and then biology, kind of that's the hierarchy. One's build on the next, build on the next. So uh, you have logic at the root and, and physics and all the rest is, a, is um, piled on top of that and uses that as its, as its foundation. So it's going to rewrite basic science, how we look at science. And uh, these experiments are in the process of being worked and 
I'm hoping that sometime soon, which is something I've been saying now for almost a year, but sometime soon uh, we will get results out and I will share those with the world, however they come out. So that's a little bit of the things that I've been doing um, with, my, with my life and work. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a fun, wild ride that I've enjoyed every bit of it. It's just been a it's just been a hoot all the way. So now here we are, and uh, of course I think we're going to talk a bit about uh, COVID uh, nineteen and the virus and how that's affecting our reality and uh, you know what's what's the big picture look like of of that, and you know that kind of brings us up to I guess the the present time because here we are what twenty twenty uh, in uh, uh, the half first half of April. So we're right in the middle of it, because this this video will be up for you know for for years. So you you need to tell people where you are, otherwise they won't get the context. Uh, oh yeah, right back in the middle when that virus was a big was a really big deal. So that's kind of where we are now. And you know I see it, of course, like everybody else, I see this horrendous uh, you know viral pandemic that and it's creating a lot of fear. And fear is always bad. You know, so you can see the, the, the dark side of it, obviously. There's a lot of people getting very sick, quite a few people that are also, you know, dying, uh, particularly old people, but now also young and, and uh, you know, middle-aged people are not at as high a rate as old people, but it seems to be a pretty nasty disease. Actually, the virus itself isn't really the problem. The virus itself is, is a bit of a weak virus. It causes weak symptoms, but it's really good at bringing on a raging case of pneumonia. And that raging case of pneumonia that you get because of this virus is what is deadly. That's the thing that makes it bad. Otherwise, we'd all just kind of, you know, blow our nose and, and uh, you know, wipe our eyes and go on with our life. It's not that bad. But this, this pneumonia that gets triggered uh, and the immune system gets triggered really to overreact to that pneumonia is what is, is uh, turning out to be fatal so often. But I see there's something really good coming out of this as well. And it has the potential for something really good. And that is that for the first time, I see that we have humans cooperating globally toward a common goal. That's never really happened before. That's a first. You know, and that's not a small thing. You know, the first time humans get together and, and do a major cooperation and not just a, you know, not just a minor cooperation, like we all celebrate something or we all, you know, throw our hats in the air or something, but something that is something that's hard, you know, something that takes some suffering to do, something that's got a lot of tough economic consequences that people are having to swallow and deal with but we're doing it anyway because people see it as the right thing, the right thing that needs to be done. So when you have a, a global uh, phenomena of you know, a billion people or so doing what they think is the right thing globally, well, that's something to sit back and, and, and wonder about. You know, that is really a big step forward that we globally would do anything because we thought it was the right thing to do. You know, it's, it's not in anybody's best economic interest 
wow, just doing something that's not in your, in your individual economic interest. That's like another amazing thing. Not, you know, and then to have a whole world doing that, you know, together, it's a pretty amazing phenomena that we're seeing here. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for individual growth. You know, we, whether we like it or not, or whether we want to or not, we are moving into a global age. I mean, it's just, it's just logic. What happens if you have social groups, anytime you have a social group, you will have rules and, and uh, you know, etiquette and manners and that kind of stuff that tries to optimize interaction within that social group. So even a family, even a social group as, as small as a family, family has to have some rules and some understandings among the family members of how to optimize that little social group. And if you have it on something bigger than that, you know, a company or, uh, you know, an organization, well, you have to have some rules about how that's going to work. So if you belong to a, you know, a stamp collecting society and that's a group, then there's certain rules about how to go about doing that. Things you can do, things you can't do, and shared information and so on. So anytime you have a social group that sees itself as a social group, it's going to start creating rules and etiquette. A Really, we call that a uh, culture. It's gonna create a little culture around that group of interactive people to optimize their interaction. Well, we have been for a, for a while, to some extent, been interacting globally. Commerce is global. We have a lot of interaction globally in commerce. Everybody wants to sell their products everywhere else, and everybody likes to buy those things from other places that you can't get at home. Uh, so that was, a, that was easy. And science has been cooperating more globally. A lot of science now, if you do something that is important scientifically, it goes into an a international database so that uh, scientists everywhere can get that information and get it kind of immediately. So science has been doing that. So here we are now interacting uh, globally somewhat and along comes this internet over the last 20 years and starts putting us eyeball to eyeball with people that aren't our neighbors, you know, people that are on the other side of the planet. Well, that brings everybody closer together. That shrinks the world a whole lot. We get to see into their backyards, they get to see into ours, we know what's going on and why. And there's a certain relatedness that's coming about that people see themselves as part of a world, you know, part of a global extent of humanity, not just Americans or Asians or Germans or, you know, some other, you know, people that work at IBM, you know, it's not just local things or Christians or Muslims. These are all organizations and they have their own cultures. But now, as we see ourselves as global, as we interact as global, we haven't yet started to create any rules or understandings or culture that's global to kind of tell us how to, how to act, things to do and things not to do. Well, so now China pr produces a, a, a virus from, a, I guess, uh, the way, uh, they kept their animals and, and, and whatever, and people all in a small space where microbes could, uh, could create and morph and mutate. 
and up comes a virus that is particularly easy to catch. In other words, as the virologist would say, it's efficient in its mobilization. It's efficient. The virus is very efficient in its getting around and it's propagating. It's a very efficient propagation system. So it's easy to catch this virus. It comes out in little droplets of water that come out of your mouth even when you just talk. You don't have to sneeze. You don't have to cough. All you have to be is like closer to three or four or five feet away from somebody and have a conversation and you can transmit this disease. Before that, the diseases weren't nearly so efficient in their transmittal. You'd have to sneeze or cough or actually get a pretty good dose of them before your, you know, your body would get ill, but not so with this one. This one uh, transmits more easily, has a little higher range of temperatures it can survive in. So that's really the, the remarkable, that's one of the remarkable things about this virus. So anyway, that starts and it affects everybody on the globe. Everybody's got it. If you look at that map of the world, there's very few places that don't have any little red dots on it. If you know the map I'm talking about that talks about you know where the global cases are. And some of the places are just covered in red. You can't see any other color. Uh, a lot of that black is showing just because they haven't reported it in any finer uh, numbers than that. In other words, you can look at the Soviet Union, which is a huge country, but they don't have the number of people with the virus from you know every state or province or you know village or however it is they politically break down you know Russia. They just have one big total for Russia. So with Russia, you get one one red spot in the middle of the country, and you click on that and see how Russia's doing, rather than like in the U.S. Every state reports you know it, its own thing. So we have red spots all over the U.S. from one one end to the other. And in Europe, of course, the countries there are sort of the size and shape of our states in the US and you know, every country reports separately. So you got red circles all over, um, you know, all over Europe as well. So where you don't have red circles all over is where you generally don't have detailed reporting. And that's why you don't have red circles all over. So anyhow, this brings up globalization in the sense that we're interactive. Now we're interactive with passing viruses away. By interactive means that somebody does something in one place in the world and it affects a lot of other people other place in the world. That's what interactive means. And we've begun to come up with some, some uh, ideas, some, some rules about how to act. In this case, self-quarantine, stay home, don't spread the virus. You know, that's kind of a and it's happening all over. You know, people all over the world are doing that, not just in one country. You know, everyone's doing that. People are wearing masks now. Many people in China already did wear masks just to help you know, avert uh, common colds and flus. <clears throat> but now worldwide, people are beginning to go out if they have to go face to face and talk to somebody, even if it's in, you know, at a cash register trying to buy some food, you know, they put a mask on or they learn keep their mouth closed, don't talk. Just put your credit card down and take your basket and go. Don't sit there and chit chat because that you might hurt that person that you're talking to. So it's an awareness of hurting others as well as an awareness of being hurt by others. That's good, that's global. So what is the rule here in global? We need, obviously, we need a global rule that says 
don't create environments that create viruses. If you've got huge number of people and animals all crammed into a little spot and it's filthy, well, that's not a good thing. And it's something that you shouldn't do because you're part of this global family now and doing that kind of thing is, is uh, not a good idea. And not only is that good for uh, say China and creating that virus, I don't wanna pick on China here, but that's also true of everybody else as well. I mean, what do we, I can think of a couple things we export that uh, aren't really a whole lot better than COVID-19, like Coca-Cola, you know, and we, we, we export that to poor countries and we get people addicted to it because they get addicted to the caffeine, they get addicted to the sugar, and then we just suck money out of them. And what does it do for them? Well, the only thing I can think of it really does from them is ruin their health, you know, make them less healthy, maybe give them a little uh, five minutes where they get a little upper when they get the first rush of caffeine and sugar. And that's a high price to pay to uh, have that, particularly for people who are living in squalor and can't afford basic necessities. But everybody will pay for their addictions, even if they have to steal money to pay for them. People will find a way to pay for their addictions. So that's a case where we're exporting something around the world that is not helpful you know, to, to people. So nobody would think of that, but there's lots of things like that. I remember when uh, Nestle, now that's a European company, uh, was convincing people, I think in Africa, that their formula, their baby formula was very much superior to breast milk and had all of these poor, basically uneducated people believing that they needed to buy Nestle's formula rather than feed their babies from the breast because that would be a lot better for their babies which of course just is not true either. Their breast milk is just perfect for those babies because that's what breast milk is for. And if we needed to solve that problem, it, wasn't by, it isn't to give them formula, it's to give those women better nutrition. You know, that would have been the way to solve that problem. So we, everyone, all countries, particularly in the West, we export a lot of things that are not really useful in the world. They're more harmful than they are useful, but they make money. So we do it anyway, okay? So now hopefully we'll be entering a, a global sense of we're all connected. Any part of it is failing, it hurts all of us. Any part of it succeeding ought to see if it can help, you know, those that are having trouble succeeding. Now, if we had that idea on a global viewpoint, Wow, what a difference that would make in the world. That would make a huge difference. We'd start exporting nastiness and, and start exporting care, you know, and concern for people. So I'm very uh, happy to see in this case that for the very first time, now it's just a baby step, you know, I'm, I'm talking about things we could do in the future. It's just a baby step, but it's the first step toward a global response to a thing that shouldn't have happened in the first place, those markets, they've been spawning viruses and bacteria, you know, for, for decades now. It just shouldn't happen, but it's profitable. People make money from it. So we go ahead, they do it anyway. And it's their country, they can do what they damn well please because that's the way we think. We don't think globally. 
and we can do what we damn well please and nobody can tell us different. Well, if we have this idea that we're all humans living together here and that uh, we need to come up with some, some uh, politeness, some rules of, of things to do and not do, like don't do things that will damage millions of other people around the globe. Well, that'd be a good thing to not do. Well, that would cause a lot of things that are making money in my country and in Europe to have to stop, as well as things like China's meat market would have to stop. And I think we'd all be better off for that. But nobody wants to do it because nobody wants to stop making that money. And even though that money that's being made say by a Nestle or a Coke or a Pepsi, I don't mean to point out any particular brand, but just things that aren't necessary, but things that, uh, particularly things that are addicting, you know, it's like cigarettes were like that, right? It's the same thing. We exported probably more cigarettes than all the rest of the countries combined to the rest of the world. And we made, I'm sure the US made a lot of money, but it didn't do people in the world any good. It was just a way of sucking money out of the rest of the world. Well, if you're a, a global citizen, you know, a citizen of humanity, not just of the United States or England or wherever you're from, if you're a global citizen, then you have global responsibilities. And global responsibilities will one day be encoded in global, uh, uh, you know, uh, culture, global rules, regulations, things to do, things not to do. So we're a long way from getting there but it's a place that we need to go. And it isn't, again, it, globalism isn't a thing that you can have or not have. Globalism is a thing that just happens when people internationally interact. If you've got things that are, that are interactive nationally, then globalism just happens. You can't not make it happen. <laughs> you, you can't uh, you know, keep it from happening. Once you have substantial interaction, across nations, you know, globally, then you're, you're starting to venture into a global culture with rules, things to do and things not to do. And most companies won't like that if they're peddling things that aren't particularly helpful. They're not gonna like that. They're gonna wanna stick to sovereignty. Yeah, it's in this nation. I'm in this, you know, I'm in the US. I can do it a damn well please with my factory and if somebody wants to buy it well that's their that's their decision somebody wants to buy sugar water that uh, will give them a double addiction that's their problem so we just offer it and if they do it what's wrong with that well that's like saying if i walk down the street and i see some children and they've got uh, lunch money on their way to school i'm bigger than they are i can just go over and slap them and take their lunch money and what's wrong with that Well, you know, they shouldn't walk down the street if they don't want to get uh, if they don't want to get robbed. You know, maybe they need to have a, an armed guard take them to school or something. Well, we don't want to live like that, where people have to walk around with armed guards. We say, no, that's inappropriate. Don't do that. That's wrong. Well, now we need to think the same way on a bigger scale because now we've grown up with our internet and our commerce and our science. We've grown up to where we are interacting with each other globally. We're affecting each other with the decisions we make. So it's coming. You know, <laughs> it's not that Tom is a globalist and is pushing a global agenda. 
It's just that logic tells you that this is where it, it must go, whether you like it or not. It's going to be that way. And if it is, let's make it that way in a very positive way. Let's not develop global institutions that help some people rip off other people. You know, let's not do it that way. Let's do it in a way where we all cooperate for the benefit of everybody on the globe. That's a much better way to do it. So I'm very enthusiastic, or I shouldn't say that, but I'm very uh, pleased by this first step of global cooperation over this COVID-19. People taking it seriously, they're staying home for the most part to protect other people, particularly older people. I mean, we've had these viruses that kill people before and other things other than viruses. You know, we've had lots of international uh, things like that, flus. And yes, they come around every year. And yes, they kill thousands of people every year. But every other year until this year, we said, eh, it's life. Let's get back to work, earn some money, make some profit. That's more important. Yeah, okay, old people die. You know, that's just, you know, it's just the way it is. Get back to work. And this time we didn't do that. We could have, but we didn't do that. We did something different. Why? Well, I think maybe we're growing up a little bit. We've had an internet. We've been, we've, we've watched people in other parts of the planet. We're not just, you know, well, we'll protect us and the rest of the world have to figure it out for themselves. Because us not spreading it will help it not spread everywhere in the world because people from the US go everywhere in the world. And if we have the disease, we're gonna spread it everywhere in the world. So the reason we stay home is to protect others, particularly our older people. And that matters this time. Last time we knew thousands of old people were gonna die when the bird flu and the I don't know, the swine flu, there's been lots of flus go through and it always kills a bunch of people. But we've reacted differently this time. And we've, act, we've reacted globally this time. So I'm seeing a, a first, you know, a big thing happening and the first time it's ever happened to this scale with this many people involved. Yes, we've had other things that we're, you know, we're, we, we would, uh, you know, have large charities like UNICEF and other things, and there'd be a worldwide day of something or other, but not like this. Now you've involved billions of people on their bottom line where it crunches them, doing things that they just as soon not do, interrupting their lives in tough ways, and they're doing it anyway because they think it's right. And their governments think it's right. You know, the governments are supporting it. They think it's right. So. Ah, big sea state change, big, um, big lessons that we can learn from this. Now, it could be that if it all goes away in two or three months and everything goes back to usual, 90% of the people may forget the lesson altogether. They didn't really learn it that deeply, but there's still going to be some that will, and it will have made a difference in us. And we, humanity, will not be the same as we go forward from here. Even if 90% of us just get over it and forget about it, we'll be different. And I think that difference looks like it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, there are some bad things going on, but the bad things mostly fall under the subject of fear. 
fear, lots of fears ratcheting up. Uh, the fear mongers are just, uh, you know, coming out of the woodwork and waxing eloquent on the internet. Lots of fear. And that's sad and that's, that's bad and sad because when you are fearful of something, you modify the future probability to make that something happen. You make that more likely to happen. So if you're, if you're terrified you're gonna get this illness, then your probability of getting the illness goes up. Not only that, when you're terrified and you're, and you're uh, fearful, your immune system tanks because your body starts to gear up for this fearful thing that's coming. And when it does that, it pulls energy from other parts of your body and your immune system is one of them that gets the energy pulled from it. So you have a, you know, you have a higher probability of being exposed to it because of your uh, modifying future probability. And then you have a higher probability of getting it because your immune system is suppressed. And that's what fear does for you. It uh, makes everything worse. And fear is moving backwards. That's de-evolving. De so we have some evolving toward caring going on globally and a lot of de-evolving as far as being fearful, you know, on the other hand. So we've got two big streams going opposite directions and hopefully we'll come out of it with a net gain, not a, not a net loss. So even though it's a, it's a terrible thing, people are dying. The sickness is pretty nasty. The people that I know of who have gotten it, uh, it's not something you, it's not one of these two day things where on the second day you feel better and you get up and you're done. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty long and pretty unpleasant illness that you get. And if you're really unlucky, you get that, uh, it goes into pneumonia toward the end. And after that, it can kill within days. It's a really uh, a very virulent uh, kind of pneumonia that that you get, and your immune system is as much to blame for the death as anything else because this virus evidently triggers signals to your immune system to come get it, hurry, pull out all the stops, and they pull out the stops so much that the immune system is what creates all the mucus because that's one of the body's defenses. Your, your moist membranes, like your inside of your mouth, they secrete mucus when it feels there's, there's something on there that's a, that's a threat. You get a, you get a bug, a bacteria or something, and it's in your mouth or throat, you start getting mucus, you cough up phlegm. Well, that mucus is the way the body grabs those bacteria and those viruses and then you spit them out. And you wash them out and you swallow them and your stomach acid kills them. So the mucus is part of the defense. And this virus tells your immune system to, you know, double time, come here to the lungs and, and get, this, uh, get this virus. And when it does that, the lungs secrete so much mucus that you suffocate to death. You can't breathe because your lungs that are supposed to be exchanging oxygen with air are all full of mucus slime and that you can't uh, get any oxygen in. So then people are just suffocating to death in their own, you know, in their own mucus. So that's the way the thing's actually been killing. At least that's the way I understand it. I, the science about this thing's evolving all the time. You know, that's just, that, that was the best idea as of a few days ago, that the way the thing was working. So in any case, we've got an ugly thing going on here, but we have people rising to, to meet it 
And then on the other hand, we have people stirring up fear, trying to make people frightened. And fear, like I say, makes everything worse for everybody. So people say, well, how can I not be fear, uh, fearful? You know, well, one, you have to let go of the idea of controlling. People are fearful because they want to control. Control is like the need for control is the need of an ego to want to be in charge and control to make sure that ego gets what it wants. Okay, now controls at the base of these things. Like you say, well, money is the root of all evil, but why do you need money? You need money because money buys power. You can move things and do things and buy things if you have money. But what do you use the power for? Control. Money buys, you know, money buys power, power buys control. What's at the what's at the end? What's the really the deep root is this control. And control is a is an ego thing. You want to control. It's about me. I want to control my outside environment so it's best for me. So it's best for my children. So it's best for my spouse and best for my family. I want to control things. Well, if you have everybody trying to control things so it's best for them, then you realize all you get is chaos. Now, if you had everybody trying to trying to change things so it was best for somebody else, <laughs> that wouldn't make so much chaos. But you know, it's all control is, is a very self-centered concept, control. So that is the issue. And if we look at control and say, we're not in control, okay? We have this virus all over and we can control ourselves and just stay home. But some of us need to go out anyway. We need to go to grocery stores. You know, there's things we need that we run out of that we have to have and we have to go out there and do things. You know, we have to have, like me, you have to have carpenters and workers in your house because you have something that isn't working well. So people have to come into your house. Um, you know, you can't just leave the world behind. You still have some living to do and that living is going to depend on other people doing things. So there's some risk involved. Well, rather than be terrified at the thought of risk, you have to just let control go. Realize you don't control anything other than yourself. And you really shouldn't be trying to control anything other than yourself, except things that happen because they happen. Now, it doesn't mean that you should be stupid and be a, a uh, what is it called, a fatalist that just says, oh, whatever happens is okay. It's not that, I'm not talking about fatalism. I'm talking about doing smart things, being clever, but at the same time, do the best you can and let everything else sort out the way it does. So you have to take some risks, take your risks, but be smart about it, minimize them. Don't just blow it off and say, well, this is nothing. It is something. And we need to let go of needing to control. If we let go of control, then we don't necessarily have to have things work out of any way other than they are. That's okay. And the thing I tell people, and it's very hard to understand, I guess, but it's true. And that is everything, everything in your environment, everything is exactly the way it needs to be to help you learn what you need to learn. That's just the nature of our virtual reality and of us of consciousness. There are feedback mechanisms here that if we act badly, we create bad things that we have to live with. Those bad things are our incentive to stop acting badly. 
you know, so the bad things will stop happening to us. So everything that's happening is optimal for us to learn what we need to learn and what we're ready to learn now. So COVID-19, evidently we were ready to learn this idea of cooperation on a global scale. So that's what we needed. Otherwise we wouldn't have done it. So I'm not trying to say the virus is a wonderful thing. You know, it's still killing people and it's not pleasant. I'm just saying that you can look at a bigger picture than just the death and destruction. You can look at, see what it's doing in the larger picture. And if you think that everything is exactly the way it needs to be for us to learn what we need to learn, then you should not be concerned about what's happening. What you should be concerned about is how to learn from it. <laughs> That's the key idea, how to learn from it. How can I grow up with this? How can I meet this with positiveness, not with negativity, not with complaining, you know, not with, with, oh no, oh whoa, why is me, why me? What a terrible time. All that complaining is negative. So there's lots to learn. So don't worry about what's going to happen. We're going to be concerned about what am I going to learn? How can I grow up from this thing? And if I end up getting sick and things, you know, it goes badly, well, that's, that's the way it is. Life is like that. Death is not such a big deal. That surprises a lot of people because death is the biggest deal, but it's not really a big deal. It's just something that you go through so that you can start over and do it again in a totally different context, which is often very helpful. So, you know, you look at the worst that can happen and you say, well, if that happens, that happens but I'm not gonna be stupid. I'm not just gonna go out and see if I can't make that happen or not care. I'm gonna be smart. I'm gonna stay home. I'm not gonna go around. I'm gonna wear a mask. I'm gonna keep my mouth shut and not talk so much, not do so much conversation. And if I'm being as smart as I can be, I don't go out any more than I have to, then you just accept whatever happens and accept it gracefully. And if that means you die from it, well, you die from it. People have to get along without you. If it means you survive, well, then you'll survive and maybe learn something and be a little happier person later for what you've learned. So there's just no point in being upset, being angry, being frightened or fearful. Okay, now you wanted to mention some of the counter theories, I think, about uh, COVID-19 and some of the uh, other things that maybe fall under fear-mongering, but maybe not, you know, things that uh, make us think uh, that we need to keep studying this problem. And uh, there's all of those, and always stay skeptical of everything. Certainly stay skeptical of everything I just told you. <laughs> stay skeptical of everything and everybody, and most of all, stay skeptical of yourself. There's always more to learn. Keep your mind open, you know, be aware, listen but don't be so quick to jump to conclusions. Just let ideas, if you've got ideas that are kind of counter to everything, let those ideas hang there and say, let's see where the evidence is. Are we talking about facts or are we talking about insinuation? Are we talking about opinion? What are facts? Facts are things that have experiments behind them. In other words, real things that have happened, stuff that happens, not that somebody talks about, now, that's an opinion. Facts are in a different category than opinion. And learning a little, uh, um, what's it called, uh, creative, no, uh, uh, 
Anyway, learning to uh, the difference between opinions and facts is a very important thing. Very important. Critical thinking. That was the word I was looking for. That's the key <laughs> idea for critical thinking. That's it. So a little critical thinking, because you'll hear lots of opinions about all sorts of things. And people will claim all sorts of knowledge and all sorts of experience. But those are all opinions. And don't come to conclusions based on opinions. Come to conclusions based on facts. Now, facts can't be facts just because somebody states them and says they're a fact. It takes some effort on your part to find out whether they're a fact or not. And if you're presented with a lot of opinions, you don't want to come at it like, well, should I believe these or not believe them? And now you do one or the other. You either disbelieve them and say, oh, it's a bunch of horse pucky, or you jump the other way and say, oh, I believe it. Yeah, that's true. But all you're doing is, is because you feel so frightened and fearful of what you don't know, you tend to pretend that you know it by coming up with a belief. You believe it or you disbelieve it. And most everybody's opinion that is that they see it as facts are really nothing more than opinions and beliefs. So you have to be careful. Yes, there's lots of other things that may be going on and don't throw those out. You know, somebody says that stuff that's kind of off the wall, don't just throw that away. You gotta consider it and think about it but it doesn't become truth just because they say it and because they have this long list of reasons and pedigrees and, you know, doctor this and doctor that said this and we found out that and it all may sound good, but it's just so much blather until you actually sort out the facts, which will take trouble sorting out. And if you can't sort out the facts because you just don't have that much information, then set it aside as a possibility and keep on with your life, making your choices the best you can, considering the possibilities, but don't consider them any more than what you've judged that possibility to be. So if you think that's, well, that's maybe 50-50 or 30% or something, well, then give it that much credibility when you think about possibilities, but you still have to make your choices, your decisions based on the facts that you know. And that's the way you deal with all this extraneous stuff coming in about uh, you know, COVID-19 or just anything else about, about life. Don't jump to an opinion just because you have to have a belief one way or another to make yourself feel better. Well, I have monopolized this conversation, Matthew, so I have to apologize and give you a chance to say at least something. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm so happy that you did. Uh, I was, I reached out to you, you know, and I was hoping that you would do exactly what you did. I, I, I enjoyed our first two podcasts and everything you said there was so brilliant, so important, and so on point. I just agree with everything that you shared. And, you know, some of the points that you made, they're all so simple. Uh, cooperating for the benefit of everyone. You know, stop exporting things that are harmful. Um, doing this on a bigger scale. And I love how you just went through and kind of phrased everything that's going on. And you brought it to light in a very grounded way just understanding that we're a global humanity which we always have been and we're getting to experience that in a whole new way you really touched on everything that i wanted you to touch on which i'm so happy because it was just one coherent brilliant set of thoughts one idea after another and the thing that i wanted to ask you um you know like in yeah going into fear the need of control um you know, 
I loved everything that you said. I, I would basically just go through and uh, say it less eloquently, but I agree with everything that you said. And, and the question that I'd ask is with everything going on, um, you shared a great summary. If we were as a humanity or an individual to get this lesson. And so if you're the individual who's fearful, um, you know, look at the facts of the virus, look at the facts of what's going on. You know, you shared a few and some of them, you know, I looked up that, you know, um, most people, they do have pre-existing conditions. Um, it says no pre-existing conditions. And this is from worldodometers.info. No pre-existing conditions, deaths, 0 0.09. So there's something uh, on this website anyway. And again, check my facts, check what I'm saying, check it for yourself, but get some facts about what's going on. Um, you know, the death rate, even from 60 to 69 is 3.6 uh, on this only one website. Right. And again, check it out. So that's very low. That means out of every hundred, maybe four at a higher rate would, would, it would become fatal. So it means that your own immunity, your own sovereignty, you should be okay. Um, and you do have that power. You do have that influence. And as you said before, if you get really afraid, um, and this also leads into one of the issues that we're facing in the bigger cities of the, the big fear is having the uh, hospitals overwhelmed. So the people that need the respirators are having something serious. Uh, they need that space for them. And so if you're younger and you have a strong immune system and you're going in there for something that isn't this thing, you might be taking up space for somebody who actually needs it. And you need to exercise your own power until it gets to the point of you understanding what it is to make a choice where you go to the hospital or something like that. So, you know, those, those um, suggestions you made are all super on point and I'm so glad that you shared all that. So the thing that I wanted to ask, because I'm seeing it in my world and I've been seeing everything under the sun of what's going on. I love the idea and it keeps coming up as this is an as you phrase it, this is an opportunity for us to grow up. A lot of people are saying this is an opportunity for us to really evolve, maybe even towards a humanity of peace, uh, maybe towards a humanity where we are understanding that our influence and what we're doing, what we're exporting, what we're doing as a livelihood, our vocation influences other people. Um, you shared it so brilliantly when you talked about um, everybody trying to change, change things so it's the best for themselves causes chaos. But if we had the culture, the worldwide culture of changing things so um, we make it better for others, that would shift everything immediately in, in such a short amount of time. And so the question I wanted to ask is if we were to make this leap as a culture to a new paradigm of understanding, what things do you think would shift? Do you think it would need to happen as an individual kind of uh, awakening or the politicians and the governments and the big industries like Coca-Cola and the, you know, there, it seems like a lot of companies out there are doing things for profit. And to give an example, I just interviewed uh, Dr. Diva Nagula and he's a, he's a physician, a medical doctor. He was diagnosed of cancer and ended up getting into remission and being healthy. But he said the first doctor he went to go see wanted to give him the maximum dose of chemotherapy immediately. And he had a financial invested interest in chemotherapy. And then you go into the whole rabbit hole of medicine and health and all that and how people, as you say, which is so important, the most fundamental thing, how are we making our choices? 
right? We can honor our own choices. You know, if you, if you made certain choices where you're eating junk food all the time, you don't exercise, you have a poor frame of mind, you do things that harm people, you're going to be more at risk of any disease. If you are being kind to others, if you take care of your body, if you are lighter and have laughter and good relationships, your immunity is going to be much higher and you're going to feel a much mm -hmm. uh, safer experience and you're more likely to do something kind for someone else because you um, have kind of sorted out your own way of being. And so now I'll ask you if you want to touch on anything that I just shared, but it kind of just complements some of your points. Mm -hmm. How could we grow up? Because these big people, like these big organizations that kind of export these terrible things, they still want their money. Do you think it needs to be individuals in that scenario or just it's up to the individual and hopefully this uh, will catch on as a culture and what things might change? Well, I think what happens is that it, Things like uh, corporate corporate uh, choices that uh, generally are choices to make as much profit as possible. Uh, those sorts of things reflect the larger society. And in as much as that society has rules, has ideas, has morality, you know, things that it thinks are right or wrong, the companies will modify themselves to reflect that. So it's not that we expect change from the top down. We're not going to expect, you know, a big corporation to say, well, gee, we're not doing much good in the world. Let's just shut down operations. You know, you're not going to get that. They're going to continue to do what they're doing as long as it's all right for most of the people. You see, if the, if the large group of, of the population says, eh, okay, so you're selling, you're selling sugar water to poor people that can't afford it and it's making them ill and they can't afford to be ill because they don't have any money to you know get health care or anything else they just barely live hand to mouth and you're not helping there you're just making addictions and sucking money out of them because they're easy to manipulate you know how to use the right advertising that says the right things to manipulate those people who are who are uh, not, not terribly good at uh, making great decisions and as long as the population supports it, they'll keep doing it. But as the population doesn't support it, they'll stop doing it. They'll find something else to do. Who knows? Maybe they'll try to sell carrot juice, you know, instead of sugar water or something else. You know, they may, you know, it's not that they just have to go out of business. They just may have to find other businesses that are part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. You know, find a business as part of the world's solution. So that's the thing. And many of them have lots of dollars to invest. So if they needed to change things or even start up some subsidiaries that were doing things that were useful, they could do that and they could make money with it. All right, they couldn't make as much money or make it as quickly as they could selling, you know, addictive substances to poor people. That'll get them the most money with the less with the less work. It has the biggest profit margin. But if their culture tells them that that's not a good thing to do, they'll take the smaller profit margin and do things that fit in. Nobody wants to be the pariah in their in their culture. Our corporations do these things that are that are that hurt people because our culture winks at it and says it's okay, not our problem. 
Yeah. Let those poor people in South America figure it out for themselves. Well, that's just being very small, right? It's being very self-centered. It's being uncaring. And that's the way our culture's been. Well, I see maybe this is a first step in changing that. So where you make the change isn't trying to force change at the top. Let's go make laws that tell you know people that they you know have to do things that are part of the solution, not part of the problem. That won't do it. That's a top-down forcing approach. You can't force people to grow up. If you try to force them to grow up, they will eventually learn how to act like they're grown up without being grown up. In other words, they'll find ways to get around it. They'll find ways to undercut it. They'll find ways, you know, everything will just shift from a, from a, uh, you know, from a, what do we call it? The light market to the black market, you know, but nothing really will change. So what, for real change that lasts, the people have to change. The culture has to change. And this global culture is just beginning to form. Just took, had its very first, you know, blush at existing here. And I think that's a good sign, but it, you know, our global culture could turn out nasty to begin with, who knows? You know, we hope not. We'd hope that it wouldn't be dominated by corporate interests who are mainly interested in sucking money out of populations, not out of being part of a solution or part of a problem. They don't care about solutions or problems. They just care about money. So that, you know, we could, we could go backwards, but I think we've made the first step and it's positive. And, you know, as we get this, this understanding in the population that these things are not good things to do, then places like the Chinese, you know, uh, meat market that, that uh, created this particular disease and several of the others that we've had over the decades, you know, they will clean that up. They'll find a way to get that meat to their customers that doesn't create this problem of making viruses. They can do that. It's just won't be as cheap. It won't be as profitable. They'll have to use more space. You know, they'll have to actually have ways of cleaning out all the manure and all the stuff that's, you know, all the animals are dropping over each other. They'll just have to spend a little extra money. So there won't be so much profit. As long as their culture supports it, they're going to keep doing it. But if there's a world culture and the world says, hey, you're doing that stuff and it's making us all sick. You need to cut it out. And they see themselves as, as members of the world then they'll cut it out and they'll make less profit and they'll find that, you know, okay, you can make a hundred million dollars a year in profit, or maybe you can only make $10 million a year in a profit. It's still enough. You know, you only have to make enough profit to pay everybody and, and uh, you know, give the stockholders some and that's it. You don't have to squeeze out every nickel and dime that could possibly be squeezed out of the population. That's not, you see, that's not the idea, but, our culture supports that. And Chinese culture supports what they're doing, but they don't, they haven't before ever seen themselves as global citizens, neither have we. I'm hoping this is maybe a turning point where we see ourselves as global citizens. We need to step up to these kinds of choices. We need to see our choices in terms of, is this part of the solution for all of us, not just for the people, for the stockholders of that company, but for everybody, we're the part of the problem worldwide, globally. And if we 
if we all do that, then boy, this, this world would change to a kinder, gentler, more fair space in a year. I mean, it'd be enormous if we could do something like that. And it isn't gonna change that quickly. And no doubt it's a be one step forward and you know, and maybe, uh, maybe two steps forward and one step back. It'll come and go as people trying to jockey for power and position and all of that's still gonna be there you know, for a long time. But eventually we should grow up to the point that corporations and individuals and governments all think, well, am I being, is the thing, are the things that I'm doing part of the problem or part of the solution for us? us, humanity, people in general, rather than how can I squeeze more money out of, out of these people? How can I abuse them? How can I get cheap labor from these poor people? You know, how can I make my factory workers work you know, a couple of hours for free? Got to squeeze more out of them, work harder, work faster, shorter lunch breaks, you know, less, less benefits. Instead of that, figure out how much profit do you need to make? What's reasonable? Not how much can I get? Because that's what I need to make. Every penny that I can possibly get, that's what I need. That's wrong. That's being part of the problem. You know, you have to make some profit. You have to be able to show the benefits of your work and your effort. You know, all your employees need to need to have enough money so that they can live a, a life that uh, makes them good workers. People who are unhappy aren't good workers. People who are miserable aren't very efficient workers. They don't come up with good ideas. They're not innovative. They don't solve problems. They just do what they have to do and aren't gonna do a bit more unless somebody makes them. That's not a good worker, but that's what you get when you tighten the thumbscrews on people, try to get more out of them you end up with a less efficient workspace. So you can, you know, you can, you can make profit more easily if your workers are really on board and really put themselves into their work, but they'll only do that if they think you're really treating them well and care about them. Otherwise they're not gonna do that. So there's efficiencies yet that we haven't capitalized on. So it's just a matter, it's just an attitude, nothing more than just a perception and attitude. It's all we have to change. Nothing else has to change except an attitude. That attitude is that, you know, things I do affect the rest of the world. Hmm. Whether it's the product I sell or whether it's the meat market I run or whatever, things I do affect the rest of the world. I have there some responsibility to the rest of the world to do things that are part of the solution to the rest of the world, not part of the problems of the rest of the world. Yes, I need to make a profit. I need to, you know, treat my employees well. There's some certain things I have to I have to get out of it, but I can be creative. I can make those things that we need, do those things that are that are helpful to people, not sell them, you know, addictive drugs like cigarettes and sugar water and things like that that really have no value other than they suck the money out of usually the poorest element because the less poor element have enough education and knowledge to not get stuck with those things quite as much as the poor people do. So we suck the money right out of the, you know, the people that need it most when we do that. So, yeah, I don't think we're going to, you start by legislating what the corporations need to do. That's a starting at the wrong end. 
mm. and it'll never work. They'll always find a way to work around whatever law you give them. They will find a way to, to defeat it, work around it. You need to change the people. You need to change the culture to not accept it, to see it as wrong, and they'll change by themselves. You don't have to go in and, you know, do anything to the corporations. They'll all just change on their own without any, any laws to force them to do anything. See, that's the thing. And all you have to do is grow up. Mm. And it's not like growing up is a, is a painful thing and an awful thing to have to do. You know, growing up, it's not like having, uh, you know, your teeth pulled or something. Growing up is what makes you happy. You know, after all, growing up is what puts a smile on your face and gives you peace and tranquility and joy. I mean, who wouldn't want more of that? That's what you get when you grow up. And if you don't grow up, you're stuck in misery. You're stuck in a, in a soap opera life. You're stuck in struggle and control and, and you know, your ego and beliefs and fear and all that stuff that makes you unhappy and miserable, makes you complain and fuss, makes you think that life's unfair. All that stuff is what keeps you unhappy. So I'm saying what we need to do is make the changes that makes everybody feel better and happier and the whole world benefits besides, you know, it's all, it's all positive. There's only an upside to growing up. There's no downside and, and growing up. What does it take? Just a change in perspective, just a different way of looking at the world in that you're not at the center of it. It's not all about you. That's the only thing it takes. You have to care about other people, but truly care, not just act like you care, but truly care about other people. And now we've seen billions of people caring about other people because they're staying home, trying to keep other people, also trying to keep themselves from getting it, but it's really about other people. I think more than it is just about themselves. They, none, of, none of them want their children to not have grandparents. You know, they'd, they'd like their children to grow up with grandparents because grandparents are a lot of fun and really meaningful to children. Whereas if we have this disease that's particularly easy to catch and particularly deadly because it creates pneumonia, well, let's keep grandpa and grandma alive if we can. All we have to do is stay home. If that means that we lose some money or some income, well, we'll get through it. And if it changes our attitude even a little bit, that's great. Something else will change it a little bit more until our attitude has changed so much that we stop doing things like exporting sugar water and creating viruses, which will we'll be responsible. We'll take the responsibility and stop doing that. You see? So it's like, there's only one way to go from here and that's up. <laughs> so evolution is slow, but it is relentless. <laughs> relentless and it just keeps chugging and chugging and chugging and even if we do it all wrong we'll get another chance to do it later and another chance well we've had a whole lot of chances with viruses that kill a lot of people and finally we've you know we've taken action on this one so it's uh, it's a good sign it's a horrible disease and it's terrible and you know that it's killing people but it's uh it's got its upside. It's got its silver lining in this dark cloud. And if we start looking at that silver lining rather than just in how dark the cloud is, and if we start seeing bigger pictures, like let go of control, just be yourself, be authentic, you know, take, take, you know, only the risks you need to, and then take those smartly, 
and then accept whatever happens, then we wouldn't have all the stress and the fear. And when we read fearful stuff on the internet, we would just set it aside as, well, I'll keep that in mind. I'll start looking for facts that can deny or verify those assertions. But I understand they're just assertions. And I'm not going to, dis I'm not going to force myself to believe it or disbelieve it, because either one of those are foolish. It'd be foolish just to disbelieve it and throw it away. It may be some information that would turn out useful and that start out at 10% probably real and maybe go to 20 and 40 and 80 and 90 and oh my God, you learn something new. You don't know, but you just have to collect more information about it. So throwing it out because it doesn't sound like what you believe is a bad idea. Believing it because it sounds like something you'd like to believe because you're very fearful and therefore you're you're a sucker for, for believing fearful things. You, you love fearful stuff because, you know, if there's a conspiracy out there at these very high levels, then it's not your fault. So that's a, that's immediate way to escape blame is, you know, conspiracy theory takes the blame off of the little people and, and puts it on people unknown and invisible. So it's a, it's a great, uh, it's a great way to be blameless is, uh, you know, have a conspiracy of others uh, for all your misery and all your unhappiness and all the woes in the world. It uh, takes you right out of the responsibility line. And otherwise you have to claim responsibility. Well, I'm part of this. You know, what can I do to change the whole thing? How can I put myself at part of the solution and not part of the problem? Well, get rid of control, find some joy, peace, happiness, and tranquility, and start making good choices based on caring, based on other, based on love, based on what you can do to help, not what's in it for you. So that's, you know, it seems very simple. A lot of simple ideas. It's just no more than a change of perspective is all it takes. And in, and in the boot, it makes you happy. Makes you, gives you a life full of joy. And you never get upset about things like COVID-19. It's just, that's just another opportunity to grow. Not a horrible, awful thing you have to endure, but an opportunity to grow up some. Tom, amazing. Amazing. Once again, all of those points were so spot on. Um, brilliant and simple. And I really like how you draw home the fact to take responsibility for what's happening. And you kind of shared that, yeah, you're going to observe reality, right? And maybe it's going to get a little bit frightening. But if you take responsibility for your own world, that's the thing that you can do for sure. And um, I loved your answer for the, the big corporations and things like that. Because what it does for people who kind of look at things and they might see, okay, yeah, Coca-Cola, for example, is doing this and exploiting. Well, when I take responsibility for myself, who I am and my own actions, that's actually benefiting those things. That's what you can do and can control. Yeah. And how you share the theories coming out too is such a brilliant way to put it because because I kind of go into the fringes in my work and space and look at things, um, I see it and, and I don't take it as fact. I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I see what I can verify. I'll do a little bit of research. But like you said, it's such a great way to say, oh, can I verify this? Is it verified six different times? Or am I just looking to 
um, compound what I already believed. But as you see one thing kind of grow, then you can notice it and say, yeah, I'm going to slide from 10%. This is probably not real to, ooh, now we're at 20. Now we're at 40. But you're focusing on your way of being. You're focusing on your contribution. You're focusing on your own empowerment. And in interviewing a lot of people, I started to kind of put my own little definition of what I thought an awakened person was or what I thought an awakened society was. And you really drove home those points a couple of times. And one of them is responsibility for self. You know, all of the world, everything that's going on, everything in your world, you know, you take 100% responsibility for. And it's not from what I can get. How much can I go get from everybody else? It's what can I give? How can I help? How can I support? And in doing that and finding, like you said, when you grow up, your passions and your joys and um, the things that you enjoy doing, it's always a benefit for other people. I think that when people really step into who they are and they're authentic with themselves, um, they use critical thinking, um, they're able to observe these things, um, they're always going to be a, a benefit to other people. And I have noticed a lot of different feedback from what's going on, but the people who live life, I'd say that are um, just maybe a little bit happier, maybe a little bit more complete, maybe uh, living more aligned with their values. They're not worried about this per se. They understand the risk. They understand what's going on. It's not like they're doing wishful thinking. They just have everything else in balance because one of your points was, you know, uh, you have to let go of control. And that's something that we all have to do. You're more likely to die in a car accident. You're more likely to die of any of these other things. And you're, like you said, you're going to die. And that's a part of this game. We know that. And that's going to be an exit point that you don't control. It doesn't mean you go out and be stupid. It means that you just kind of accept that there is this bigger thing at play that we are all a part of. And when you're looking at the quantum slit experiment and you see these things, you know, in the nature of reality, you're like, oh, there's something bigger than me. This is a very fascinating thing that I am a part of. Um, so I just agree with everything that you said and uh, you couldn't have put it more simply, more beautifully and taking in all of the elements of, of what people are experiencing right now from all the different theories, from all the different fear tactics, you know, like one of the examples I'll share that kind of, you know, bugs me a little bit is, is, you know, in our papers, it said 150 million people could die from COVID-19. Well, when you put that in context, uh, what I heard was, well, it's 150 million people if every single person in the world were to get it um, without other facts. And it's, so when you read that, the immediate thing is, holy crap, oh my God, that's terrifying. And you're going to run home and you're going to be fearful. Your immune system is going to go down. Mm -hmm. You're going to make stupid choices. You're not going to be in love and kindness. <laughs> you're not going to be helping your neighbor because you're like, oh my goodness. But then you start to look at it deeper and you're like, oh, well, it's actually this age group. Well, I'm not in that age group. Well, I'm a little bit safer. Okay. Don't need to lose my mind. But how could I help? How could I make sure that that person doesn't get it? How can I, you know, be of support? Because if you're just mm -hmm. in fear mode, it limits your pattern recognition. So then you only have a few choices, fight, flight, or freeze, and you can't open up to compassion. You can't open up to new ideas. You can't open up to critical thinking because your blinders are on and you're ready to defend yourself and it's a terrifying thing and there might be no need for it. Once you kind of dive down a little bit more um, and, and just check things out, you can kind of unravel that a little bit and have a little bit more empowerment and perspective. And so I want to honor your time because I know you've been doing a lot of interviews. You've been um, you know, just putting your part out there. This is even more wonderful than I anticipated. I'm so happy to have listened to your perspective on this whole thing. And I hope that this uh, message gets out there far and wide and, and all the work you're doing. 
is there anything else that you wish that I'd asked um, you or you want to talk about? And if you wanted to go into a bonus question, the bonus question that I would throw out there is one of the big upgrades, one of the big evolutionary leaps, I think, for humanity is peace. How do we have peace? And so if you were going to give a talk at the UN or Tom was going to give a message to humanity, uh, how would you kind of share with these leaders? Uh, like, what would you share with them? Because let's say we were talking there, you've got this different belief system of a religion, uh, these way of life, they want these lands, there's, you know, power grabs for money and things like that. Um, you know, and there's all these reasons why we have to create war. And I'm just curious, you know, what, what you would offer those individuals or what you would offer humanity as a perspective? Well, okay, there's two things that I'll, I'll comment on, but I'll do that last thing first. And that is that it's, it's very similar to what I've already said. And that is that you can't have peace in the world until the people in the world find peace in themselves. That's how you get peace in the world. Again, if you want to save the world, if you want to make your maximum contribution to helping this world grow up to be a kinder, gentler, peaceful place where everybody can thrive, the most optimal thing you can do is grow up yourself. Because once you find peace, then and other people find peace, once the population finds peace, once the culture finds their own individual peace, then world peace will be a shoe in. It'll just happen all by itself. You can't legislate world peace. You can't make up a bunch of rules that say, okay, here are all the rules. And if everybody plays by these rules, we'll have peace. Just like we do, uh, you know, all countries, we have laws, we have all these laws. Everybody obeys the laws, everybody will be happy and it'll be fine. Well, you know, that never works. There's always people that will disobey the, you know, disobey the rules, disobey the laws, try to get around them, try to get under them, try to abuse them. And then there's those who will make laws just for, because it suits their own self-interest. These laws aren't laws for people at all. They're laws to make this corporation more profitable than that corporation. So laws aren't the answer. You see, it's not that we need a better structure that will force people to be nice and be peaceable. Forcing people to be peaceful is an oxymoron. It doesn't work that way. And you can't frighten people into being peaceful. The only way we will ever have peace in the world is that when people of the world find peace in themselves. And they only are gonna do that when they grow up, when they realize that everything is exactly as it should be to enable them to learn what they have to learn. See, it's the same thing. Once you see the world that way, so there's nothing really wrong with this world other than the things that we make wrong in it. It's the things that we do that makes things bad in the world, okay? So these things that are bad in the world are triggers for us or, or what can we say, uh, some things that should nudge us to change who we are. I say the only reason that corporations go sell junk and make money is it because their culture allows it. The only reason that the Chinese can pile all those animals and people together in one spot and make viruses is because their culture allows it. Because it's profitable. That's why their culture allows it. 
Well, we need to change ourselves. We need to see that there's, there are things more valuable than profit. That peace is more valuable than profit. That caring and being helpful is more valuable than what you can get. If you look at people and say, well, I wonder what that person can do for me. What am I gonna get out of this? What am I gonna get out of that? If that's the way you approach life, I can tell you your relationships are going to be horrible. You're, you know, if you ever do end up with a significant other, they'll probably leave you. And so will the next one and the next one too, because nobody wants to be around somebody like that. That's what we call a user. It's all about them. They're self-centered. What's in it for me? So if you have those kinds of negative, fearful attitudes, you create a very negative, unpleasant life. You create problems in your life that is the natural stimulus to make you change yourself. So that's how we find world peace. We have to grow up. So that's really the solution to all the problems. It's a solution to you know, the hunger problem and the peace problem and the, uh, you know, the medical problem and the virus problem and all these problems boiled down to creating a culture that's about other, that's based on caring, not based on how much can I grab, which is what a corporation goes in. That's the kind of person a corporation is. If we call corporations individuals, well, they're a very self-serving, self-focused, self-centered, you know, what's in it for me? That's how they are. Well, we know that people who are like that don't do very well as far as their relationships go. Now, they may be rich. They may have, you know, a billion dollars in a bank, but that's not success. Success is where you find happiness and peace and tranquility and love and caring. And that's what success is. You can be rich and miserable. or You can be poor and miserable. And if you don't grow up, you'll be miserable. Whether you're rich or poor is irrelevant. So that's kind of the same answer. We find world peace as we find peace inside ourselves, which means as we let go of fear and accept things as they are, deal with them the best we can with being positive. It just comes down to us. If we just do that, and if 10% of us do that, the others, that'll start to grow. Then it'll be 12% and then 15% and it'll just keep growing because it is so much better way to be. Life is so much better. Just 10% of us do that would make a huge difference. Eventually, most people would do that. It would just be the way they saw the world. You know, it'd be their attitude. It'd be part of what they got out of their culture, that that's the way you see the world. That would be a beautiful place to live. So that, that's the comment on that last thing. But one thing else you touched on was, you know, you, you look at the media and the media, as you say, were saying something very, you know, scary, like, you know, how many hundred, you know, how all these people, all these people could die. Okay, now why would they report that? Well, they report that because it's sensational. It grabs people's emotions, grabs attention and grabs you by your emotions. That's why they would say that. Not because it's really news. It's not. Nothing like that's going to happen. Everybody on the planet isn't going to get it, and et cetera. It's just a made-up thing to grab attention and grab emotions. Sensationalism grabs attention and emotions. A long, long time ago, news and media were about trying to dig up the truth. 
They were called the fourth estate. They were supposed to keep all the politicians and everybody honest because if somebody made a lie, then they'd all dig it up and report that it was a lie. Well, we don't have any news anymore. All we have is entertainment and propaganda. The news is gone. When you read media, that media, and I'm being a very, I'm painting with a very broad brush. There are media here and there that aren't like this, but in general, the media is only interested in making money, selling things that grab people's attention and grabs their emotions. If it grabs people's attentions and their emotions and it's on the internet, it'll go viral. Millions of people will see it immediately, but it's got to grab attention and grab emotions. That's how you do that. That's how you sell newspapers. Put stuff in your newspapers that grab people's attentions and emotions. And how you do that, it's sensationalism. And if there's nothing sensational to happen, we'll make something up. That's how you sell papers, make something up. Well, it never happened that, what it was, 150 million people died? That didn't happen. It's not likely it ever happened. Well, that it never happened isn't important. It's sensational. So print it. You see? That's this difference between opinions and facts. You know, that falls in the not a fact group that you have to be able to sort that stuff out and just throw it away, just junk. You know, and most of what we get in the media is junk. It's not really information that people need to know to make better choices. That's the way newspa newspapers used to be in a, in a sense when there was a lot of responsibility for getting the truth. That's gone. Now it's entertainment. To make somebody feel, to grab their attention and, and, and grab their emotions, I put that under entertainment. It's not really information people need to make choices. It just titillates people. You know, looking at other people's dirty laundry, uh, coming up with accusations. None of that is factual. It's all just titillation to get people to pay attention because getting people to pay attention to you is how you make money in the media industry is by getting attention. So as you read these things, you know, 150 million people could die. Don't take that seriously. Don't take most anything you read seriously or here or anything on the internet. For the most part, you just have to look at it, decide whether these are really facts that are being reported. It's information you can use, or it's just junk. Now, it may even be real, like in Canada, uh, there was a, there was a uh, situation where a hospital had to decide whether they were going, they had one ventilator and two people that needed it at the same time. One was a young boy, about 12 years old. The other was an older man, but an older man that had a lot of valuable knowledge, like maybe a virologist or somebody who uh, could be very helpful in working you know, with this disease. It, was, it wasn't just any man, but a man with a lot of credentials and experience and uh, that would be very necessary for our culture to have these kind of people. So they, so they uh, needed to come to this choice. Do we save this old guy who maybe turn around and help us maybe with the disease or do we save this young boy who has his whole life in front of him? And hospitals sometimes come into those choices. It's just life. That happens, and that hospital will have to make that choice, and they have to make it quickly. They, like within the next hour, they're going to have to make a decision, or they'll both die. So anyhow, somebody from the media 
takes that choice and publishes it. It goes viral and it's a big deal in Canada. Which one should get the ventilator? And it goes on and it's discussed and it's discussed and it's a real big deal. See, that's just sensationalism. The fact that that happened is true, but what could people do about that? What value was it to feed that to the public? What value is it to start an argument that has no answer? There's no answer to that. There won't be an answer. All you can possibly do is start arguments. Polarize people, the people who think it should have been the 12 year old and the people that think that, and then they can call names and hate each other. You know, that's the only thing that you could, you could ever expect to do. So why was that published? Okay, it was a fact that happened, but it still doesn't make it publishable. And what happens then is that that poor hospital who has to make a choice based on no information, no logical information in which you can make that choice is going to come out looking like a goat no matter what they do. No matter what they do, half the people will call them murderers. You see? So everybody will want to second guess what they should have done when they're not in that position of having an hour to make the decision. On, on no information or very little information. So it, it doesn't help anybody. It's not part of the solution. It's part of the problem. So even when you have a fact, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, it should be published. If it's not helpful. Now, if it's news that people could use to help make better choices, publish it. People need that. But if it's just junk that's sensational, that catches attention, you're part of the problem. And right now we don't have much news media. All we have is a bunch of people competing and being sensational. And we haven't had news media for a pretty long time now because the money isn't in giving people information they can use. The money is in giving people an emotional jerk. That's where the money is. But why do they do that? Because that's what we demand. They do that because everybody runs out and buys that newspaper or, you know, they pass that viral around the internet and gather a lot of money in ads or whatever. So we do it again because it makes money. Real story, real issue. And if a bunch of people wanted to sit around in an academic format and discuss the ethics of either choice, fine. But that's not really what was going on. What was going on was jerking people's emotions and getting people to come to beliefs about it one way or another and something very dysfunctional. So as you look at the internet, be my last kind of thing to tell people is you look at that internet and you read the stuff you read. Don't take it too seriously. Look at it and say, how can this help me make better choices? And if the answer is it can't, all it's gonna do is upset me or you know, jerk me around then just throw it away. Don't read it. Don't read it anymore. Don't read any more of that stuff. Just throw it out. All it'll do is make you unhappy because all of those things that are out there to jerk your emotions, they jerk your emotions with fear because it's much easier to jerk your emotions with fear than it is to jerk your emotions with caring and love to jerk your emotions with a negative, with something negative. That's easy. Make people upset, make people angry. 
It's an easy thing to do. Make people happy, make people feel full of satisfaction and, and, and uh, joy. That's a much harder thing to do. So that's why all that, that emotion grabbing is almost always fearful. And fear is a way that, that makes you manipulatable. If you're fearful, you can be manipulated. Anybody that understands your fear can make you dance to any tune that they wish. So it makes you very vulnerable to be fearful. It's another downside of fear. It makes you into a mob rather than a culture if you're fearful. So I guess I'm done. <laughs> wow. Tom, this was amazing. I enjoyed listening to every minute of that. Everything was so on point, so important, especially at this point in time and the way that you're able to articulate all of your points from just such a grounded space and you know, resonates so true because I feel like it is true. And I just enjoyed all of this. Is there anything else that you wish that I'd asked or that you'd like to share with the listeners before we close? Um, well, I don't know. I guess I could say that if you're interested anymore in the stuff that I do, uh, the first thing I'll tell you is that my books can be found for free on Google books. So you can go there and read, uh, for no cost. Otherwise you can buy them the usual places. Now that Amazon is selling books again, uh, and bookstores and whatever you can, but I also have a lot of free content on, uh, YouTube literally thousands of hours on YouTube. And I know it's very daunting whenever you put somebody picks up a YouTube uh, uh, article and, and it says three hours long, you know, I mean, you, you, your immediate reaction is to throw that in the bit bucket because that's just way too long to look at. But if the topic interests you, I'd say take these things slowly, watch it for 10 or 15 minutes. And next time you pull that back up, it'll come back up at the place that you left it. You know, YouTube does that now. So take it at 15, 20 minutes at a time, even if it takes you, you know, a month to get through a, you know, a long set of videos, you'll learn more if you do it slowly than if you try to bite it in too big a piece. And it's the same with the books. If you're going to read those books, don't read more than, you know, a chapter in every two or three days and then think about it. You'll get a whole lot more out of it and you just sit down and read the whole thing in two weeks. You know, it's, uh, so don't be daunted by the, by the size of the files, just take it slowly and read it as long as you think it's valuable to you. And if you come to the conclusion, it's not, then throw it away. It's, you know, don't, don't read it. If it doesn't resonate with you, throw it away. That's not a problem. I don't mind at all. You know, it's, uh, what we're talking about is you changing yourself, not me changing you. I don't give you information that changes you. I give you information that helps you see things from a different perspective that enables you to change yourself if you want to. And if you don't want to, then that's okay too. Just stay exactly where you are and life will stay pretty much exactly the way it is for you. Amazing. Well, thank you, Tom. Well, I, yes, definitely go check out Tom's YouTube. There is a ton of information in there and it is all phenomenal. You've been doing this work for in a long time and it's really at the top tier of any information out there. 
And do they find it at, is it mybigtoe.com? The, the website is mybigtoe.com. Yes. Yep. All one, all one series of letters, my big toe. And, and uh, that should get you to my website. The website can take you to YouTube and other places. I've got a new, a new website coming in, a, I don't know, maybe three or four months that uh, it's really going to be a lot better, but you can get along with the one I've got for now. <laughs> Great. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I highly suggest you check out more of his work if you enjoyed this. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so grateful for the life path you've chosen and to share so much of your work. It's really phenomenal, and I'm so grateful for your point of view now. So if you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends because these are ideas, concepts, and perspectives that can be incredibly helpful at this time. And I just want to thank you, Tom, for everything. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we stay connected and we can do it again soon. Okay. Well, thank you, Matthew, for giving me the opportunity. I mean, information is good, but shared information is much better. Amazing. Thanks, Tom. We'll see you again soon. Okay. Bye. See you guys. All right, guys, I hope that you enjoyed that amazing episode with Thomas Campbell. I always love speaking to him. He's so brilliant and yet grounded and really provides practical advice. If you like the show, please share it on Facebook and wherever you can. Help get the word out. Leave a review on iTunes. Become a patron. Join the Academy. would love to see you in there. Um, it's over at mattbelair.com. Uh, you can look for Academy. And also, if you guys want to do some coaching or take the soul compass, it's all over there as well. So thank you guys so much for listening. Remember, the best way to support the show is one kind act wherever you are today, uh, wherever you are in the world in your community. So thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.